Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, January 9th. In today's news, the Iranian regime refuses to share the black box after that plane crash in Tehran. A turf war rages between House and Senate Republicans, and President Trump's Treasury Secretary is maneuvering behind the scenes to conceal how much taxpayer money the Secret Service is paying to the president's private businesses. But first, the big idea. U.S. officials said they knew by Tuesday afternoon that the Iranians intended to strike American targets in Iraq, although it was not immediately clear exactly which they would choose. The early warning came from intelligence sources as well as from communications from Iraq that conveyed Iran's intentions. At the Pentagon, in the most senior levels of military leadership gathered in a room in anticipation of the Iranian missiles, and soon learned they were coming. The advance warning gave military commanders time to get U.S. troops into safe fortified positions at the two bases that were hit. According to the Pentagon, troops at bases in Iraq were ordered into bunkers, donned protective gear, and sheltered in place. The troops remained in their protected positions for hours, including after the strikes. One official said at least some personnel left al-Assad Air Base in western Iraq before the attack. Commanders on the ground, overseen by Marine General Ken McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command, also moved some service members off small bases in the region and scattered equipment and people on installations to make them harder to hit. In Iran, the regime had positioned itself for a public messaging campaign. On late Tuesday afternoon, before the strikes, Iran transmitted a letter to the United Nations Security Council outlining a legal basis for military retaliation. Military officials on our side were not sure, once the missiles were launched, which locations Iran had targeted. It was hard to tell at the Pentagon which bases were under attack until actual impact. It was more than an hour from the first strike to the last strike of the ballistic missiles. As one senior defense source put it, quote, This was not some kind of boom, and then they all hit at once. This was launch, launch, launch. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says the missiles hit tents and a helicopter, but didn't cause major damage, and there were no casualties. The lack of casualties gave administration officials more confidence that the Iranians had intended to make a public show of force, largely to save face at home. A senior administration official says there's a consensus across the intelligence and military communities that Iran could have done dramatically more damage if it wanted to. Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, told aides during a meeting in the Roosevelt Room that it will take at least two months to understand whether the U.S. strategy is working. Another senior administration official says they're all proceeding for now under the impression that the launches were a domestic effort designed to reassure people in Tehran, not an effort to escalate, and that that is what persuaded Trump to back down. Trump told senior military officials on Tuesday evening that he wanted an off-ramp, and a way out appeared when Trump's advisors told him there's good reasons to believe the missile strikes were designed to not kill any Americans. The Pentagon and the State Department sent staffers to the White House on the early hours of Wednesday morning to write the speech that Trump delivered to the American people yesterday. Trump made some last-minute additions, including writing in a line that Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon as long as he's president. But a third senior administration official says that they collectively breathed a sigh of relief when the president agreed to read from prepared remarks and not take any questions. 
Some of the president's closest aides were concerned that he might deviate from his precise remarks and misspeak if he made extemporaneous comments. But here's the bottom line. While appearing to step back from the verge of war, Wednesday offered little indication that there was any give in the irreconcilable demands that brought the two countries to the brink in the first place. Trump, in his speech, said the United States was, quote, ready to embrace peace, but any thought that he would use the occasion to provide an incentive in that direction was quashed when he added in the very next paragraph that he will impose additional punishing sanctions, penalties he said will remain until Iran changes its behavior. In his own televised speech, Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei said with apparent satisfaction that Iran delivered what he described as a slap to America's face. But he added, there would be no peace until the United States changes its behavior, including by, as he put it, completely withdrawing its military forces from the region, including Iraq. There's little expectation that Iran will stop its support for proxy groups that have pushed its interests in the region, often with lethal force and terrorism against U.S. interests. Each country has now indicated that the ball is in the other's court. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the probe into what caused that crash of a Ukrainian passenger jet that killed 176 people shortly after takeoff from the Tehran airport is already getting mired in politics. The Iranian government is calling it an aircraft malfunction, blaming Boeing. But the Ukraine government is leaving open other paths of inquiry. At least one U.S.-based aviation expert said it appeared the plane was not intact before it hit the ground. And a former top accident investigator for our Federal Aviation Administration, Jeff Gazzetti, says the crash carried, quote, all the earmarks of an intentional act. Iranian authorities say it was all technical problems. Ukraine's embassy in Tehran initially concurred, issuing a statement that ruled out terrorism and suggesting likely engine failure, but then it retracted that statement raising a new round of questions about whether different scenarios, including an external cause, such as an Iranian missile, were being explored. The Ukrainians noted that it was a brand new plane. An Iranian general then issued a press release saying that the, quote, rumors that an Iranian missile brought down the plane were completely false. Then Ukraine's embassy put out a statement that said any conclusion about the causes of the accident is not official. Todd Curtis, an aviation safety analyst for the website airsafe.com and a former senior Boeing safety engineer who's assisted in accident investigations, said based on the video and photos from the crash site, it appears the plane was coming apart before it hit the ground. He says the wreckage pattern is consistent with a plane that was not intact, which others have said. He said that would mean that the crash could have been caused by an in-flight breakup, which could mean an in-flight explosion, a mid-air collision, structural failure, an external strike, or some kind of major system malfunction within the aircraft. Then, adding to the intrigue, the head of Iran's civil aviation organization announced that the Iranian government will not share data from the black box recorders with the United States, and that the investigation will be controlled by the Iranian government. Number two, an intense turf war is raging here in Washington, behind the scenes between House and Senate Republicans over who is going to get to defend Trump during the impeachment trial. 
House GOP leaders in recent weeks have advocated for Trump's most aggressive defenders, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan, John Ratcliffe, Doug Collins, guys like that, to help White House counsel Pat Cipollone push back against the two charges that the president abused his power and obstructed Congress. Trump, partial to bare-knuckles tactics and top-rated TV performances, loves this idea, according to four different administration officials. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell hates it. (laughs) He and his fellow GOP senators have expressed concerns directly to Trump that a House-led defense would offend moderates, particularly Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. They argue that Trump has already won the backing of the GOP base, so he and his team need to focus on ensuring Republican unity as they acquit him. McConnell, who discussed the trial with the president at the White House for more than an hour yesterday afternoon, has been advising Trump and his lawyers not to think of the trial as what he keeps calling a, quote, made-for-TV type setting. Other GOP senators, including John Cornyn from Texas, a close McConnell ally, are saying publicly that House Republicans lack the temperament (laughs) to be persuasive or effective. Senior administration and House GOP officials indicated last night that no final decision has been made. Ultimately, the call is Trump's. As one official put it, there are a lot of rabbits running around claiming to be the very best bunny, but the president hasn't yet decided which set of fuzzy tails he'll use. That's a direct quote. Meanwhile, there's also internal drama on the Democratic side, as a growing chorus of Senate Democrats has soured on Nancy Pelosi's strategy to hold back the articles of impeachment. Half a dozen Democratic senators have now publicly called for her to send them over, expressing concern that it looks like she's playing games for political purposes. Number three, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has been working behind the scenes to delay a Democratic effort that would require the Secret Service to disclose just how much it spends protecting Trump and his family when they travel until after the 2020 election. These disclosures would highlight the millions in taxpayer dollars that have been paid out directly to Trump's private businesses, which the president still owns. The issue has emerged as a sticking point in recent weeks as Mnuchin and key senators have been negotiating draft legislation to move the Secret Service back into his department. After 9-11, the Secret Service was moved from Treasury to the Department of Homeland Security. During the 2016 campaign, Trump promised repeatedly that he would, quote, rarely leave the White House, and he said he would cut back on the wasteful travel of Barack Obama. Since taking office, however, Trump has made more than 50 visits outside the Washington area to his own properties. The government spent about $96 million on travel by Obama over eight years. A report by the GAO estimated that Trump's travel cost $13.6 million in just one month in 2017. If spending continued at that pace, Trump would have exceeded Obama's total expenses for all eight years before the end of his first year in office. The extensive international business travel and lavish vacations of the president's grown children with Secret Service agents in tow as well as the expense the Secret Service incurs to secure numerous Trump properties, have added to the agency's financial strain. Since their father was elected, Trump's sons, Eric and Don Jr., have made business trips to overseas locales such as Ireland, Scotland, Dubai, Uruguay, and India. In 2017, documents show that Eric Trump's quick visit to check on a construction project at a Trump building in Uruguay cost taxpayers about 100000 bucks. We may not know the full cost now until after 
the election. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, January 9th. Thanks so much for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.